Well, good morning. As we get started this morning, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you've blessed us. But Father, most of all, we are mindful of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the blessing that he brought down to this earth, that he would put aside all of the the trappings of divinity. He would leave his home in heaven with you. He would become a human being. He would walk on this earth. And Father, he would go to the cross and take all the sin of the world on, on him and die there for us. And Father, we don't know how to respond to that. But Father, help us to respond in humility. Help us to respond in love. And help us to respond in praise and worship of you and of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, our desire is to be more and more like him. Father, to be made over more and more into his image so that the world around us will see him through us and that they will be drawn to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that they may come to know him as well. And Father, that is our desire and our prayer this morning. And we pray it through his name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, we're now in our sixth week of our eight-part sermon series entitled Resolve to Follow. As most of you, I hope, know by now, this series is a direct result of our 2014 Netherwood Park theme. Last week, I gave you guys a pop quiz um, to have you tell me what the 2014 theme was. I'm not going to really comment on how most of you did on that pop quiz, but just I I want to say this, I'm going to give you a second chance this morning to tell me what the 2014 Netherwood Park theme is. So on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to loudly, in unison, tell me the 2014 theme. One, two, three. Man, you guys have made a lot of progress in a week. I'm very proud of you. Good job. That all may know we are disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a theme that stresses our collective desire to be people who reflect the nature of Jesus at all times, in all places, and in every situation. It stresses our desire to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. So the past five weeks, we've covered a lot of ground. We start out by exploring the, the importance of allowing Jesus to be the central focus in every aspect of our lives, so that we can clearly and consistently demonstrate the nature of Jesus Christ, not only to ourselves, but to those who are around us. We then explored the importance of being dusty, the importance of being covered in the dust of Jesus that can only come from following him very closely. And we observed that we can know that we are covered in his dust because his dust reflects his compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, and loving nature. And then in our third week, we focus on the importance of counting the cost, the importance of counting the cost of being a follower of Jesus. And we affirmed that choosing to be a disciple of Christ will interfere with our lives, and it will cost us something. And then we turned our attention to our children, and we discussed the opportunity and the responsibility we have to give our children to the Lord so that they too can begin their walk in his steps, so that they too can begin to be transformed 
into his image. And then last week we talked about crazy love stories. And I want to mention right here that I do appreciate all the jokes about me being a stalker and about Kathy needing to get restraining orders and all of those kind of things. I was amused, um, but I'm not sure you got out of the sermon exactly what I intended for you to get out of it. But I appreciate it anyway. We talked about crazy love stories and the, and the fact that Jesus calls on us to choose him as the great love of our lives. Uh, he calls on us to have a willingness to choose him above everyone else and above everything else. And we observe that Jesus' call makes sense when we think about what he has done for us. When we realize that our response to him is a result of the greatest love story of all time. What Jesus did for us was the ultimate crazy love story. And so today, we're going to turn our attention to an area of great concern for Jesus in the first century. And it's been a great concern of God throughout the centuries. And it shouldn't surprise us that it continues to be a troublesome area for us today. Today, we're going to talk about rules. Not just about rules, but about the dangers of substituting rule following for following Jesus. The dangers of choosing external obedience instead of choosing Jesus. And we'll talk about the futility of pursuing salvation through our own efforts instead of pursuing Jesus Christ and accepting his offer of grace. We're a people who understand rules and laws and regulations, aren't we? We understand them because they've been a part of our lives ever since we can remember. In fact, I'm hard-pressed to think about any aspect of our lives that isn't governed to some extent, at least, by rules and laws and regulations. And while I sometimes resent the control that others place on me with all the rules, I recognize the importance of having structure, the importance of having boundaries, the value of having defined standards of right and wrong and good and bad. I think we all recognize that a world in which every individual is given free reign to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and however they want, would be a very unpredictable and oftentimes a very dangerous place. Now, I also think that we would all prefer to live in a world where rules and laws and regulations aren't needed. A world where the two-year-old never bites another two-year-old because of their great love for their fellow toddlers. A world where students always show up for their tests prepared, having done all of the study they need to. Where students always complete their homework, and they do it because of their great love of learning and because of the tremendous respect that they have for their parents. And we'd like to live in a world where drivers always drive safe speeds and where they always yield to other drivers because of their great love and concern for their fellow man and their fellow woman. But we also recognize we don't live in that kind of world. That's not where we are. And we find security in defined boundaries. And we find security in defined consequences. Consequences of staying within the boundaries and the consequences that come from moving outside the boundaries. Those provide us security, safety, comfort. And what's true of our physical lives is also true for our spiritual lives. 
In our spiritual lives, we crave security. In our spiritual lives, we want comfort. We want peace. And it probably shouldn't surprise us that over the centuries, mankind has continually resorted to rules and laws and regulations in an attempt to meet their needs for spiritual security. There's only one problem with that. Spiritual laws and spiritual regulations and spiritual rules don't really provide security at all. They provide a false sense of security. And they give those who find it impossible to follow the rules and laws and regulations a false sense of hopelessness. And that's the problem that Jesus is confronting in Matthew chapter 23. And that problem is personified in the Pharisees. In Jesus' time, the Pharisees were just the latest and most visible group of religious people who had made the mistake of seeking spiritual security in law-following, security in rule-keeping, security in regulation-abiding. And to make matters worse, they were in a position of authority. They were in positions of leadership. And they were demanding the same behavior out of other people. Behavior that was impossible to perform. And it only led to hopelessness among those who are unable to meet the Pharisees' demands. Time won't permit us to read all of Matthew chapter 23, but I do want to read some portions to give us a feel for the problems that Jesus saw in the lives of the Pharisees. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 23, I'll start reading in verse 5. Matthew 23, 5. Jesus is speaking of the Pharisees, and he says, Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted on the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. Jesus clearly has a problem with the external focus of the Pharisees. How do they know they're spiritual? Because they wear spiritual clothes. How do they know they're spiritual? Because they go to church and they sit in the right places at church. How do they know they're spiritual? Because other people call them by spiritual titles. Let's pick up in verse 23. Jesus continues speaking to the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. How do they know they're spiritual? Because they give exactly the right amount of everything. To the point that they go to their spice cabinet and pull out each spice and pull out exactly a tenth of even every spice to give. They know they're spiritual because they give exactly the right amount of everything. They're secure in their spirituality because they have every external marking of being religious. They dress right. They go to church. Other people call them religious titles, and they give in exactly the right way. So what's the problem with that? 
Well, the problem as Jesus sees it is that their spirituality is only external. Their spirituality is only on the surface. And what they're covered with isn't his dust. They're covered in a different dust. It's dust that's a disguise. It's dust that is a costume. It's a spiritual facade, and it covers up their true natures. That's the problem that Jesus has. Jesus uses two powerful images in chapter 23 to describe the true spiritual condition of the Pharisees. In verse 25, he compares them to dishes that have only been cleaned on the outside, while the inside has been left dirty. It's like going through the buffet line and picking up a bowl and complaining about the bowl and being told, oh, we cleaned the outside very carefully, but you can see the remains of somebody else's soup on the inside of the bowl. It's not the outside that's concerning Jesus, it's the inside, and the inside is dirty. And in verse 27, he compares them to whitewashed tombs, tombs that are beautiful on the outside, tombs that are ornate on the outside, but inside the tomb is still death and still decay. No matter how you dress it up, a tomb is still a tomb. And Jesus sees through the Pharisees' facade. And he sees that on the outside, they have all the trappings of being religious and spiritual. But inside, there's death and decay. It isn't that Jesus doesn't care about actions. And it isn't that he doesn't care about behaviors. And it isn't that he doesn't care about obeying the law or obeying rules or obeying regulations. Jesus cares about that. Jesus cares deeply about that. But Jesus calls his disciples to a different kind of obedience than what the Pharisees were calling the people to. And that, finally, brings us to our key point that you'll find in your outline. Our key point is that choosing to follow Jesus is choosing obedience from the inside out. Choosing obedience from the inside out. Jesus does call us to obedience. But it isn't because I said so, obedience. And it isn't you'll pay if you don't do it, obedience. And it isn't I'll pay you if you do, obedience. Instead, he calls us to remember whose you are, obedience. And he calls us to remember who you are, obedience. It's obedience that reflects the nature of Jesus Christ at all times, in all places, and in every circumstance. We're called to obedience in response to our loving relationship with Jesus Christ. We obey because of the love he has for us. And we obey because of the love that we have for him. We obey because of our loving relationship with others. We obey because we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Let me use some of our dusty language to illustrate what this looks like. Inside-out obedience is loving compassion towards others because of Jesus' loving compassion for us. And it's also a result of our love for other people. Inside-out obedience is loving kindness toward other people. Because of Jesus' loving kindness toward us and as a result of our love for other people. Inside-out obedience is dealing with others in humility 
because of the loving humility demonstrated by Jesus Christ as he went to the cross for us. And it's also humility as a result of our love for others. Inside-out obedience is treating others gently because Jesus has treated us in loving gentleness and because of our love for others. And inside-out obedience is being patient with others because Jesus has been patient with us and as a result of our love for others. And inside-out obedience is forgiving others because Jesus has lovingly forgiven us and it's as a result of our love for others. So we obey not because Jesus said so, but because Jesus did so. We obediently follow in his steps. Another example. In his bulletin article this week, David highlighted the seven key activities from Netherwood Park's 2020 vision statement. These are seven areas that our elders have chosen to highlight as important for each of us individually as followers of Christ. The elders' vision for the future as a congregation would be a congregation where every member prays every day. A congregation where every member studies the Bible individually every day. A congregation where every member attends a worship service every Sunday. A congregation where every member participates in Bible class every Sunday. A congregation where every member is involved in a small group Bible study and is engaged in some type of service ministry. And a congregation where every member is being mentored by a more mature Christian and is mentoring a less mature Christian. But if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of using this list as a set of rules, as a checklist to follow out of duty and obligation, or maybe even because the elders said so. And if we aren't careful, we can begin using a list like this as an external measure of spirituality, of our own spirituality and of the spirituality of others. And you know, we're pretty good at that. We're pretty good at measuring performance. So we might look around and say, someone who participates in all seven of those activities is a 100% Christian. Seven out of seven. And we might look at someone who is participating in six of those seven and say, they're an 86% Christian, which is a good, strong, high B, right? Not bad. Passing with good grades. But then we look at those who are only involved in five out of seven. Those are 71% Christians. Barely squeaking by, just making the grade. And everyone else, those are failing Christians. They just don't measure up. And don't get me wrong, this list can be used and probably should be used as a gauge, but not as a gauge as to how we're doing as rule followers, but as a relationship measurement to help us determine the health of our relationship with Jesus Christ and to help us determine the relationship that we have with our fellow disciples. All seven of these activities are really marks of inside-out obedience. So what will a disciple of Christ, what will someone who understands the depth of Jesus' love and who understands that they, in return, love him deeply as the great love of their life, 
What will they do? Well, I would suggest that they can't imagine not praying daily. Not praying hourly. Not praying constantly. They can't imagine not being in conversation with the great love of their life. They can't imagine not digging deeply into the word of God at every opportunity. Because they want to know everything about the great love of their life. And they can't comprehend not gathering with other disciples at every opportunity to praise and honor and worship the love of their life. And they can't wait to hear the word of God taught and to hear and share insights into the word that was written by the great love of their life. And they crave the intimacy They crave the depths of relationships that come from being a part of a smaller group of Christians who share the love of their life. And they welcome every opportunity to serve others because they want to serve others in the same way that the love of their life has served them. And finally, they relish the opportunity. They relish the opportunity to have mature Christians walk alongside them, giving them support and counsel in their desire to be covered in Jesus' dust. And they also welcome every opportunity to walk alongside less mature Christians to give them love and support and strength and encouragement in their desire to walk in the steps of Jesus. That's relationship obedience. And that's the type of obedience God has desired from his people from the very beginning. As you read through chapter 23, you'll see that Jesus had some very harsh words for the religious people of his day who chose rules over relationships. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind guides. He called them blind fools. He called them sons of hell. He called them snakes. He called them a brood of vipers. Why the name-calling? Why the anger? Why the distress? I think I know why. I think because Jesus recognized the dangers inherent in rule-following spirituality, especially when practiced by religious leaders. So in the so what section of your outline, you'll find three dangers of choosing religious rules and rituals over relationships. The first danger is that when we choose rules over relationship, we create an environment where it's difficult for others to come to God. It makes it difficult for others to come to God. You see, when we as individuals and when we as a church make following Jesus all about the rules, people are going to walk away from the rules, but they're also going to walk away from Jesus. Insisting on obedience to external rules is not a path to a relationship with Jesus. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's a path away from Jesus. The relationship with Jesus must come first. The relationship with Jesus must come first. And then Jesus will call his new disciples into inside-out obedience into relationship obedience, into obedience to the love of their life. Well, the second danger 
of choosing religious rules and rituals over relationships is that we become law enforcers rather than loving neighbors. We become law enforcers instead of loving neighbors. If we as individuals and if we as a church become so caught up in, in enforcing the letter of the law and every detail of our rules, we'll miss opportunities to show the love of God to other people. When laws are more important than love and rules are more important than relationships, we need to understand that we're walking in the footsteps of the Pharisees, not in the footsteps of Jesus. And if that's where we're walking, it shouldn't surprise us to find ourselves covered in the dust of the Pharisees instead of the dust of Jesus. The third and final danger I want to highlight in choosing religious rules and religious rituals over relationship is we create an environment where guilt overwhelms grace. An environment where guilt overwhelms grace. I don't know about you, but I've tried the path of rule following. And I couldn't ever do enough. And I couldn't ever be good enough. And I couldn't ever accomplish enough to make up for all of my mistakes, to erase all of my sin. And the result was always more and more guilt. More and more guilt because of my continued failures. So why would I want to place the burdens of guilt that I couldn't bear on the shoulders of other people? See, that's exactly the behavior of the Pharisees that Jesus condemns in Matthew 23 and verse 4. He says they tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift even a finger to move them. Heavy loads tied up, put on the shoulders Compare that, compare the burden of guilt that comes from rule following to what Jesus offers, to what Jesus promises. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says these words. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Following Jesus provides rest from guilt. He gives relief from guilt. He relieves the burden of trying to do enough to make up for our sins. His grace covers our sins. And we've been set free to follow him in loving obedience. When we follow Jesus instead of rules, grace overwhelms guilt. Following Jesus means that grace overwhelms guilt. So let me quickly offer up three things we can do now to help us avoid the trap of rule following and instead embrace our relationship with Jesus. The first thing I'm going to suggest that we do is that we remember Israel that we spend time reflecting on Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were the people to whom God's laws and regulations were given. They were the people who over and over again embraced the laws and the regulations, but didn't embrace God. 
the giver of the laws and regulations. And God over and over again made it very clear that his desire was a relationship with his people. As he said through his prophet Hosea, he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. We all need to understand that God has always desired an inside-out obedience that comes from a loving relationship with him. The second thing that I'm going to suggest that we can all do is meditate on Jesus' meal with Simon the Pharisee and with Simon's uninvited guest at that meal. During this next week, read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Read the story of that meal. And as you read it, ask yourself this question. Am I more like Simon or am I more like the woman? Am I more like Simon who was such a stickler for the rules that he kept Jesus at arm's length? Or am I more like the woman who had led a sinful life but was willing to break every rule to embrace Jesus Christ? I want to suggest to you that the woman is exactly the kind of follower that Jesus desires. And finally, I want to invite you to discard the burdens of rule keeping and actually embrace the freedom of grace. Jesus calls us to discard the life of duty, to discard the life of obligation, to shed the heavy burden of guilt that comes from never being able to do enough. And instead, he invites us to embrace his grace. Grace that we don't have to earn. And it's a good thing we don't have to earn it because we can't earn it. But it's a grace that has been paid for. It's been bought. Jesus Christ already paid the price so that we don't have to. And he paid it when he went to the cross. He invites us to live with a freedom and with a joy that comes from having a light burden. And an easy yoke. As we close, I want you to listen to the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul wrote these words For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are all God's workmanship. Created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So my invitation to, this, to you this morning is to embrace the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And if you would like to find out more about how you can embrace the grace of Jesus Christ, we invite you to let us know. And you can do that in a couple of ways. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing a song and you can walk to the front And let your needs be known. Or if you're more comfortable, you can walk to the back and you can ask for directions to room 104. In that room, you'll find two of our elders, godly, mature Christian men who would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come while we sing.